This morning, we're going to start a new series. Uh, last week, we finished up with the uh, Psalm chapter 23, taking a look at the shepherd's psalm. <clears throat> and uh, I was, uh, you know, kind of prayerfully considering what um, <clears throat> what the Lord would have. I had a couple of things that I was bouncing around. I've been doing uh, some uh, kind of on and off study of the book of Ezekiel, and that's kind of a, <laughs> it's a long one and it's a tough one. There's a lot that's in there. And I was looking at it going, man, I, I could probably make this a good three or four year um, endeavor to get through Ezekiel. Um, so I was, I was contemplating that and I didn't really want to run roughshod over it. But I've also at the same time been looking at the book of uh, Malachi and I thought, well, you know, that's kind of an interesting book. The last book of the, uh, the Old Testament, and um, there's a lot to be learned from Malachi. Um, there's a lot to be learned about uh, how um, how God views things and how man views things. And that's really kind of, if you will, the theme of the book. Uh, because the Lord will say something like, uh, um, you've robbed me. And then Israel says, wherein have you robbed, or have we robbed you? And uh, again, it's the, the obtuseness, if you will, of, of mankind in the relationship to God. I was thinking about that and I went, and then, uh, the Lord brought to mind, um, some very important things about, uh, about the Christian life. And I want to start a series that talks about the Christian conflict, um, and specifically what that's about. So I want to start with looking at a couple of different passages. Um, we're going to start over in the book of James and James chapter four. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about background of conflict, uh, of war, battle, um, fighting, however you want to phrase it. Um, there's a couple of things that I want us to take a look at that are, are really super important for us to understand. Uh, I want to take a look at a couple other issues in regards to uh, how we go about uh, identifying enemies. Um, and then also we're going to probably move on into uh, how do we get victory? Um, and, uh, this is going to be a very different take. Um, and I'll show you why here in just a second, but, um, beginning, let's go ahead and, uh, um, let, let, let's get, let's go ahead and pray again. And, uh, we'll get into, uh, this, uh, this study in earnest. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. Thank you again for an opportunity, Lord, to begin to study this subject about, uh, the Christian conflict and Christian warfare. Lord, I pray that as we study this, that uh, your scripture will be open to us, that we'll receive the instruction that you have for us, and that, Lord, we would uh, truly desire, Lord, to see how victory can be obtained, and, Lord, how you can uh, bring that in our life. Again, Lord, I thank you for all that you've given to us, and I pray this time will be a blessing unto all of us, a blessing unto you as we endeavor to hear and learn and listen. And I ask and pray all of these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So in James chapter 4, we see the beginning part here. And we're talking about uh, warfare, if you will. And in uh, James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill, and ye desire to have to uh, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. So we see here James starts off with having this discussion very clearly about uh, warfare. 
And he's talking about warfare with other people. Now, now this again is an external conflict. And that conflict can happen in a church. It can happen with the individuals outside of a church. But one of the key things that he identifies with this is if you look at verse, uh, uh, verse one, he talks about a war in your members. Now we know that sometimes there are conflicts with those of us in the body of Christ. And again, I just referenced that. But here we also can look at this as a war within ourselves. And there's a couple of things I want us to look at. So from here, we can kind of see there are the external battles that take place. Uh, go over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> and it says in verse uh, verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So here's another conflict that we see. And now we start talking about a spiritual battle. Because we clearly identify that one of the enemies here is the devil. One of the enemies, or the enemies that we see in verse 12 are spiritual in nature. Because he says it's not flesh and blood. So we know that there is that conflict that is working against us. So again, we have an external conflict, but it is spiritual in nature. So we can have a, a, a situation where we're having physical, uh, um, you know, conflict and physical fights. And then we can have an issue where there are spiritual battles that are going on in our life with temptations and things that are from the external part that are coming against us. Because again, there's the idea and the concept, which we'll get into in a bit, uh, that the devil wants to simply destroy you. That's the, that's his, his, uh, his intent. That's what he desires to do. <clears throat> so now we see these two and they're external. They're external. <clears throat> so let's go down a little bit further to the book of, uh, Romans, Romans chapter seven this time. <clears throat> Romans chapter seven. <clears throat> You're going to have to forgive me. Um, yesterday I was uh, trimming some of the storm damage off of my neighbor's tree. And uh, <clears throat> they're both birch trees and I'm allergic to birch. <clears throat> so <clears throat> needless to say, this morning I woke up and I'm like, wow. <laughs> a, little, <clears throat> a little on the congested side. <clears throat> Romans chapter 7 Um and uh, we, we we have towards the end of the chapter, Paul going back and forth, uh, talking about uh, uh, that which he would do and that which he does do and so on and so forth in the, the, the discrepancy between the two about having a desire to do one thing, but then doing the complete opposite, uh, desiring to do what is right, but then turning around and doing that which is sinful. Uh, and, and, and I dare say there, there are not a lot of Christians... And I, I, I phrase it that way to be a bit ambiguous, uh, because there are some that do. But most Christians don't sit there and seek to uh, uh, bring evil to other people. There, there are some Christians that are they're that backslidden that they just seek to d- destroy other Christians because they've got nothing better to do with their life. And we know that that's just a wrong mentality. That's that's not how we as Christians are supposed to be. That's not how we're supposed to behave. 
But uh, what we find here is um, this, this conflict that exists. And this is the kind of the purpose of this study to start off with, is the internal conflict. And you jump down there to verse, oh, let's jump down to verse uh, 21. He says, I find a law that, uh, I, excuse me, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Uh, you know, we, we know that we have the, the Holy Ghost. We know that we have the Holy Spirit. We uh, have his word that guides and directs. Uh, but at the same time, there's a, a conflict that we have, which is, well, our will. Uh, and our will, if it's not matching God's will uh, and is in direct opposition to it, is a sinful thing. So we have to be very careful about that. We want to make sure that our will matches what God's will is. That's why it's important for every Christian to know what the will of God is. Uh, and it outlines it in Scripture over and over and over again. It's not something that is uh, too difficult to understand. But what we find here is he's talking about this conflict. He finds that there's a law. He says um, when good is around, there's also evil. It's just, just going to be the case. We know that. Uh, you know, we, we understand that there's law enforcement officers and there are criminals or perpetrators or suspects or however you want to, 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 to categorize them. But as we go down through this, I want us to see here in this, uh, what he, how he, how he phrases it. In verse 22, he says, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So he's talking about a war that is internal. It's an internal conflict. And we, we often, you know, people will blame the devil for a lot of stuff. They'll blame the world for a lot of stuff. But Paul here is saying, we really need to, you know, get, get down to the root of the issue. It's us. We're, we're the problem. So we have to begin to identify a few things here. And I want us to go, go over to another familiar passage in 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and in verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Now again, he's talking about some external conflicts. He's saying that's an external thing. Uh, He wants to redirect this, and he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And he clarifies that there saying, I'm going to start talking about another battle, but I want us to make sure and understand that we've got the right kind of weaponry that can defeat this, that can make this conflict end. And it says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that has exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing to captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. This is the, this is that conflict that, that Paul was talking about in Romans that he's talking about here to the church at Corinth. And it starts off with the thought processes that originate in our heart, that migrate to the brain, that uh, are, are distributed to our members, our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, whatever it may be of how we go about doing things that bring us into captivity, into the bondage of sin, if you will, uh, bring us back into those uh, uh, beggarly elements, as Paul talks about in Galatians, and all of the things that are contrary to God. 
So now we've identified that there's a couple of things that we look at with the external fight of, of the, there's the, the world and, uh, there are external conflicts of, with, uh, with other humans. There's a spiritual battle that is external that is on the outside, uh, that where, you know, the, there's those influences that are trying to get at us to affect us. But then there's this internal battle that we have to deal with. And this is going to be the subject of the study. As we go through this, we're going to start taking a look at how do we deal with the internal thing? Because here, here's the, here's the issue. Somebody phrased it and I'm going to paraphrase it here. Uh, the war that is without the external is the result of the outcome of the war that is within that is internal. And what, what I mean by that is, how you deal with the devil and the principalities and powers and how you deal with external conflicts with other human beings is going to be determined about who wins the battle inside you. So we have to start there. We have to begin to look at that. So if somebody has conflict with another person, the first place that they have to stop and, 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 and begin to look into is their own life. Not the life of the other person, not the life of what's going on around or uh, not taking a look at and saying, well, this is all the devil's fault. But to take a look at the self, to analyze, to pray, search me and try me. To, to, to have a, a reflection of, okay, with the mirror of the word of God, hold it up and say, what does it look like? What, what is affecting my heart? What is manipulating my thought processes? Where, where is it all come from? So this is what we're going to begin to look at. So the first place we're going to start is we're going to start where the battle started. Turn over to the book of Genesis. Let's turn over to the book of Genesis. <clears throat> and I want us to see a th- few things here. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to start. Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> and in verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now, this is the intent. God created man and woman to have dominion over the earth. Both of them. Not just male. Okay? This is something we need to understand because God makes it pretty clear the role of, of females. And I, I will tell you this, it is the devil's intent to attack every female that he possibly can. He has a special hatred for the female gender. And we'll get into that a little bit more. There's something about it that he just absolutely hates them. And he wants to destroy them. That's why he targets females. Just take a look at the world. I mean, we live in a world where they, 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 they go through and they hyper-sexualize everything, but they primarily focus on women. And it skews the mindset 
of human beings and how they're treated. So it's an important thing to think about. But here, I digress, I kind of got off on a bunny trail there. But in verse 28, it says, And God blessed them, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living creature that moveth upon the earth. So we see God's original mandate to man, what what, what he was supposed to do. Here he is in a, if you will, a, a control and occupy mentality. He used to have dominion over all of these things. He used to make sure that he exercises the proper authority. He used to make sure that he's exercising the proper care uh, and, and how this world was to be run, this earth. That was his responsibility. And as we go through this, when you jump down to chapter 2, and in chapter 2, here in verse uh, 15, it, it, it makes it clear again a little bit more about this mandate specifically for men at this point. And he says, And the Lord uh, took the man and put him in the garden uh, of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So here, here is part of this other issue. The very first job that we see that is ordained to man is to dress and keep something. Now this is very interesting because when we start thinking about the word keep or keeper, we have to understand what that talks about. Because people, again, they, 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 they just short circuit on this stuff. So, you know, if somebody sits there and thinks about the word keeper and they automatically think the word keeper and they think over there to Titus chapter two, where it talks about the woman is supposed to be a keeper at home, guess what they think? Oh, that means she's supposed to stay at home and cook and clean and, and, and wash everything and, uh, and, and take care of the children and man is left to do whatever man's gonna do and go out there and be the provider of the family. If that's the mindset that Christians have, it's the wrong mindset. Why in the world, in the middle of all of those things, would he stop and say, I wanna make sure that that's what the woman's supposed to do, keep, is to sit there and cook and clean? in a physical thing, when he's talking about spiritual things. We have to make sure that we don't insert things into the Word of God that we're not supposed to. Because again, you go over there to uh, uh, where, over in Micah, specifically, the men were condemned for not keeping at home. So that means that they would have the same thing. If we're going to apply that interpretation to that word, then we need to apply that interpretation to the other word, where it's used over there in in Micah. You know what that means? That means that the men are supposed to cook and clean at home. And all the women said, amen. (laughs) No, you know what it is? It's joint responsibility. It's joint responsibility. But those are physical things. God's not talking about a physical thing. He's talking about a spiritual thing in those situations. So I want you to notice something here. When he's talking to mankind, he says, dress and keep. Dress and keep. And I want you to look at this here, and specifically where he's talking about keeping something. Now, keep your place there. Go over to the next chapter, chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, I want you to take a look at verse 24. So here they are, they're kicked out of the garden, and what do we have? 
It says, so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turneth every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So what was happening there? There was a keeping that was going on, a protection. So somebody came close to the tree of life and tried to take it. Well, there was that sword. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure the end results are, 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 are very well understood. It was a deterrent. It kept people away. It kept the, un, the unlawful at this point intrusion at bay. So there was a protection that was there. We also find, you know, here in, in chapter 4 and in verse 9, uh, where it says, And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Meaning, is he his guardian? Is he his protector? Is he the one that is, uh, if you will, responsible to make sure that he knows where he is at every moment of the day? So we find this word keep to be very, very interesting. We find the word keep all throughout uh, uh, Psalm chapter 119. When we were studying that, we found it. And again, that word keep, we're talking about something that is meant to guard, to protect, to value, to treasure, and to hold near and dear, if you will, to make sure nothing happens to it. As I said before, we have these things called keepsake boxes. What do we do? We put things in there that we want to keep that are important to us. They have little to no value to anyone else, but they have value to us. Something from relationships, uh, uh, you know, where, you know, a husband and wife, you know, the, from the, their, you know, little trinkets or whatever from the first, uh, uh, first time they went on a date or the, you know, from the honeymoon or from their first anniversary or all the way up to their, you know, 20th, uh, 25th, 30, 50th and so on and so forth. They have these little things that they keep and it's a keepsake. It's a keepsake. I mean, crying out loud, even even the world understands that. Think about this. You go to Hallmark, and what do they call their ornaments? Keepsake ornaments. Well, why is that? Because they want you to keep them, to distribute them for others after you, even. Something that is is used, and what do you do? You take care of it, you treasure it, you protect it, you pass it on. So here we have this commandment, going back over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where he tells that man, he says, I want you to dress it and keep it. I want you to dress it and keep it. So here he is, and, and, and I would love to focus a little bit on the, the dressing part, but but that's an ornamental thing. It's ornamental. So again, when we're talking about keepsake ornaments from Hallmark, we put them on a Christmas tree and we hang them to display them because it's of something of value. We, 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 we ornate it. And it's supposed to speak to something of what that ornament represents. So you go over to where it talks about how the woman should uh, uh, adorn themselves over there in Second Peter, and it very clearly is talking about um, how how they dress. 
And it's supposed to be the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. It's supposed to be the ornament, if you will, of the hidden man of the heart that they represent, meaning that the way that the woman is to compose themselves in every part of them, including the physical, is to demonstrate Jesus Christ in them. That's how that works. So we understand that here, when he was supposed to uh, uh, be dressing the garden, he was supposed to be doing it so that it represented God's glory. That That's the object behind it. It's God's garden. He was just there as the caretaker. But he got to enjoy all the benefits of it. But what we find is, he said, keep it. Keep it. Now that's a kind of an interesting thing when we think about it, isn't it? What is he keeping? Is he keeping something in or is he keeping something out? Now, very clearly, it's a keeping out. Because he's warning here at this point in time, there's going to be an outside influence. Now, at this point in time, the devil has already fallen. Lucifer has fallen. He's made his decision. And he's about ready to declare war on earth. And he's about ready to try to usurp authority. And God says, Adam, I want you to keep it. No unauthorized influence in the garden. Now, that's an interesting thing when we think about how it was created in perfection. Sin had not been introduced to mankind. But there's this warning that's in place. He warned them specifically, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we know that sin was in existence. Because the commandment came. Just like Paul talks about over there in Romans chapter 5. So the commandment comes... And it's given, and there's a specific thing that they weren't supposed to do. But here, we find that part of this was he was supposed to keep some things out of the garden. And specifically, that would be Lucifer, the devil. There's supposed to be things that he's supposed to be doing, and if you will, keeping that influence out. So this is kind of, this is where we start getting to this internal aspect. So we see where it all begins because we understand what happens next at this point in time. Uh, Eve is created, and then in chapter 3 we see this, the, the serpent, who is de- the devil himself, influencing in the garden the woman, deceiving her, who then in turn takes that influence and influences her husband. And he willingly, knowingly, sins against God in disobedience. So it falls on him. So here we are in this, you know, looking at all of this and and mankind being warned that the garden needed some careful, diligent uh, watching over to, to ensure that there was no outside influences and that nothing was going to affect it. Now, obviously, that didn't happen. 
This is the background of the conflict that we're about ready to talk about that goes on in our life. Okay? I want you to go over to the book of 2 Peter. Let's go over to 2 Peter. And we're going to see about, you know, how this kind of all starts in 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, and if, if uh, you remember where we were studying this uh, not too long ago, in verse 4 it says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into change of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So here we see <coughs> excuse me, that some angelic beings had violated God's standards, and God kicked them out. God kicked them out. Now again, you, you go over there into the book of Revelation, and in the book of Revelation you find a war takes place in heaven where a third of the angels rebel. But here we've got some individuals, individual angels that have disobeyed. You go over to Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, and you find very clearly that that was the case. They were doing things that they weren't supposed to be doing. They were mingling with mankind, and that was a no-no. And the end result was some horrible things that occurred. But what we find is is that this is a common thing that happens when, when angels do disobey God. They are removed. They're kicked out. And by the way, they don't get any redemption. Jesus Christ did not die for angels. He did not die for Lucifer. So that whole guy that runs around, that Rob Bell, that says that even in the end, the the devil's going to accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior? No, he's not. God did not die for him. His, His punishment is very clear in Scripture. He perishes in a lake of fire with eternal damnation, eternal torment. And that's something that we as Christians, we don't want to be part of because that's a that's a devil's hell and we don't want to be part of that. That's why God said uh, it, it very clearly in, in, in chapter 3 of Second Peter, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't want to see any soul, human soul, go to hell or burn in a lake of fire. But we condemn ourselves when we sin. And we send ourselves there because we violate the standards of God. And the judgment has to be just and holy and God cannot allow sin into heaven. He doesn't allow angels that sin. He didn't allow Lucifer to remain. So he kicked him out. And we kind of have to keep that mindset. The reason why I'm talking about this is because we have to have that mindset when it comes to sin in our life. It's got to be kicked out. Look, it wasn't allowed in the garden. God doesn't allow it in heaven. Why in the world would he allow it in our life? If he, if we allow it in our life, then we, we, we cannot sit there and say uh, to God and ask the question, why are all these things happening to me uh, in a consequential manner? Why are all these things occurring when we are losing the battle daily inside. Because we're yielding ourselves to sin and we're yielding ourselves to the wrong influences. 
So here's, I mean, again, we're talking about the origin, the origin of where this stuff comes from. Take a look at the mentality. Go over the book of Isaiah. Let's take a look at those familiar passages in Isaiah chapter 14, and we'll take a uh, take a look over in Ezekiel uh, 28 in just a minute. But Isaiah chapter 14, in Isaiah chapter 14, we we see some things that are in typology. Now God is specifically talking. Uh, in certain cases, in certain aspects to some, some, uh, you know, kings that are doing that which is wicked. He talks in some typology, uh, in regards to that. Um, uh, but what we find here very clearly is that this is talking about one specifically in verse 12. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Okay. You have to be careful there because that son of the morning, some of uh, some of those other uh, translations change that and they change it to like morning star or something else. You got to be careful with that because that means that they're trying to make Lucifer Jesus Christ one and the same. Got to be very careful with that. Okay, but here it's talking about specifically falling from heaven, Lucifer. Now, obviously, this is not applicable to, if you will, some sort of fleshly person. Because man doesn't dwell in heaven. So what do we find? He says, how art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Now he makes it very clearly here <coughs> that he is going to be punished because of this, because he is saying, my will is going to be over God's. He says, I will five times in usurpation of God's authority. He's saying he's going to be better than God. He's going to be greater than God. He's going to be over God. He is going to be like God. And that's the exact same thing that he told Eve. It's the exact same thing he told Eve because he, he made it clear. He said that, that, that he, that, that, that God was keeping them from being gods. I mean, he makes it clear in verse uh, 5 of Genesis chapter 3, For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And this is exactly the same thing. So we find that it becomes this, if you will, Luciferian, satanic mindset. It is anti-God, it is anti-Christ. And when we realize that that is the main problem, some of the main conflict of how we deal with our day-to-day battles, we understand this background, we're going to be able to deal with this a lot more efficiently from the Word of God and deal with it in a victorious manner rather than dealing with this this mentality of, oh, well, I'm just a rotten sinner, I'm just going to be the way I am, and I just can't, I'm never going to get over it. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Nobody has to remain in that sin. Nobody does. 
Look, some people will say, well, you know, I'm I'm an alcoholic. And I'm always going to be an alcoholic. No, you're not. You, you say something like that, you know what that means? You're telling God that he's a liar. Why? Because cannot God give you victory over it? Cannot God bring you uh, out of that sin? But again, you've got to be purposing in your heart to do that. You, gotta, you, you have to understand that you are here to do something and it, 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 the Lord has a purpose for you, and that purpose is not including sin. So we can't uh, align ourselves with that. Some people say, well, I, well, I'm a drug addict. I'm always going to be a drug addict. You know what? I, I've known people that were drug addicts, and I will tell you this. When God gets involved, when Jesus Christ makes the change, the change is permanent. One of my friends up in Linwood, man, he was, he was a heavy, heavy drug user. You know what he is now? He's the assistant pastor to the church at Open Door Baptist Church. And he's very knowledgeable in the scriptures. And he studied them diligently. And that man loves the Lord. And you know what? He hasn't touched or had a desire for those things in decades, decades. So yeah, God can cure all those addictions. It's just the question of whether we want him to. We don't have to be labeled like that. We go around and we slap labels on ourselves, but you know what we are when we do that? We're liars. We lie to ourselves. And we tell God he's a liar. Because it says in Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. When Jesus Christ said it's impossible with man, but God it's possible, those are things that we take a look at, and you know what we do? We disregard the word of God. So we have to get to a point of where we're starting at this Christian conflict, looking at this saying, okay, well, I want to make a change. I'm losing the day-to-day battle whether it's the affections of the heart or whether it's the thoughts of the mind or it's the habitual uh, um, sin that we do in our members that we just do out of a force of habit. And look, all those things, and I, and I, put, I, I focus on something like alcohol or drugs or tobacco use or pornography or any of those things that people can become addicted to, I don't care what it is. You know, some people will say, you know, well, hey, you know, I just cannot function without coffee in the morning. Then you are an addict. And I dare say that you need to give that to Christ. Because you know what? It should be, I can't function without Jesus Christ in the morning. I can't function without Jesus Christ in the day. If you need a chemical kick in the pants to get moving in the morning, then you have spiritually lost a battle. I mean, look, you know, the same thing goes with gluttony. If I am, and you guys know I enjoy sweets, certain types, I'll phrase this, uh, jelly beans, certain types of jelly beans, I'm just gonna, 
<laughs> I got some taco cart jelly beans. I still have some left if you want to try them. They taste like taco and, uh, I, there was like horchata and there was some salsa and guacamole and things like that. And I'm like, you know, it was, it was, it was good. You, you, you try one. And, and the other day, you know, I still have them in my pantry and, uh, my, my daughter was asking you, do you want to try one? And, and I forgot to tell her, I, I, I did, I snuck one and I just wanted to see. And I don't know which one I got, but immediately it was like, <laughs> it's one of those things. I mean, and I love Mexican food. Okay. It's something in a, you know, taco in a jelly bean. I don't know. I think we're drawing a line here, <laughs> but you know, if I say I have to have jelly beans, and I crave it, and I and, and, and I can't control myself. I am an addict, and I am a glutton. I shouldn't have to have those things to function in this life. When we have to have something in those physical things, then we have a problem. This is how quickly we can derail. And this is again where we see where where Lucifer is saying, "I have to have this in defiance and rebellion of God." Turn over the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter twenty-eight. See the other passage that uh, uh, is parallel to this one. <clears throat> Here he is talking about the king of um, uh, of Tyrus. <clears throat> And uh, he's talking to the king of Tyrus, and he's using this uh, this individual as an example. But we're going to see here that the examples that are here are very, very much devilish in their context. In uh, Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up thy lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, uh, uh, Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. That was been in the garden Eden, or been in Eden, the garden of God. Now, I'm pretty sure Tyrus is not that old. And I'm pretty sure he didn't make it through the flood. So again, we can kind of see where he may be talking to this king of Tyrus, talking about, you know, some of the blessings he's had, but he's very specifically speaking to someone else. And it says, every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onks, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets, of thy pipes, was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Okay, I'm pretty sure that Tyrus was not walking around as a human instrument. And I'm pretty sure he wasn't covered with these type of stones. Now, anointed cherub would be. Take a look at the next part here. He says, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. Okay, so now we see he's talking about something and someone very specific. An anointed cherub. Where are the cherubs? The cherubs are around the throne of God. There's four of them. There used to be five. There was one that had a responsibility that covered the throne of God, and he had musical instruments in him for the purpose of glorifying God, and he had all of these gems in him for the purpose of demonstrating the glory of God. 
That's why you see gems now being associated very clearly with mankind, especially when you go over to the nation of Israel and talking about the precious stones over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I digress. He says, here this is anointed chair of the covereth. I've, I've set thee so, so was thou upon the holy mountain of God. The holy mountain of God in heaven. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. And you find that in several descriptions of heaven itself around the throne. It says, Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. So what do we find here down in verse 17? Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted the wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee down to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. And here they are very clearly in a very parallel passage. He says the same thing over in Isaiah chapter 14 about how he's going to bring Lucifer down and bring them before the people. And they're going to say, this is the one that deceived the nations. So we find here that there was this lifting up of the heart that was the problem. You know what the lifting up of the heart is? Pride. Why is it that God hates pride so much? Because right here in Isaiah chapter 14 and in Ezekiel chapter 28, what do we find? Pride was the main source of the sin. That's why, you know, look, we want to say, well, I'm proud or, you know, I'm proud that I made the right decision. We got to be careful about the words we say, right? We have to make sure that we diligently watch over them. You know, we let those things slip out and we go, well, you know what I mean. I, yeah, I may know what you mean. God may knows what you mean, but God wants you to be more thorough in your voice. He wants you to specifically say, look, if we just lace our words with colloquialisms and, and you know what, at some point in time, we're going to sound incoherent. We're going to be babbling on about a 68 Corvette, um, that if you understand that context, then Praise the Lord, I guess, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, you're going to be babbling on about something that, that makes no sense at all. Somebody got it. <laughs> so we, 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 when, when we realize that we have to be responsible for these things, and we have to be responsible for what comes out of our mouth, because that can start a war with another person, we have to be responsible for the influence that we receive that affects us internally. We find that this Christian conflict has a very, very clear beginning in the Garden of Eden with Lucifer attempting to destroy what God created. Now, now again, just to kind of put some things in the context here, I want you to go over to the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel. <clears throat> Oops, went the wrong direction. You know, you get through Daniel chapter 6, and then you get into Daniel chapter 7, and the whole book kind of takes a different tone. Uh, you got all these stories, you know, uh, the first part of Daniel, and then you get into the prophecy, and there's these beasts, and there's these things, and these visions, and all sorts of stuff. 
And you're just like, wow, what is all this stuff? Well, it's a lot of prophecy. There's a lot of stuff that deals with the, the end times and, and things of, of this nature. Um, but, um, <clears throat> I want you to go to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 10, um, here in verse 1, it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar, and the thing was true. But the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing, and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, Till three whole weeks were fulfilled. So the guy is fasting here. He's even fasting, uh, of, uh, kind of, if you will, cleaning himself, <laughs> anointing here. You know, it's kind of interesting. And, and all of these things happen. And then we, we see here in, in verse four, and in the, the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by, by the side of the great river, which is Hedekiel, I lift, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked and behold a certain man clothed in linen whose loins were gird, uh, girded with fine gold of Ufas. His body was like unto barrel, his face was uh, as the appearance of lightning and his eyes were lamps of fire and his arms and feet were like the color of polished brass and the voice of his words like the voice of the multitude. So all of these things, he sees this vision and he starts seeing some things. Now this is after three weeks. And as he sees all this, in verse 10, it says, and, and behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a great, greatly beloved, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee. And, uh, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken the, uh, this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then he said unto me, Fear not, Daniel, from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, for I am come for thy words. So 21 days later, this angel shows up. Three full weeks. Three full weeks. The words were heard, and three full weeks, here comes this angel. Here's why. But the prince of the king of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. You ever read that and just go, what? <laughs> what is that? The angel was battling a principality, not a physical prince of the kingdom of Persia. Every nation has a spiritual prince. Israel's happens to be Michael the archangel. Okay? This one prevented the angel from coming to Daniel. And he had to call Michael the archangel to come help him fight. Now, that's a spiritual battle. 
That's a spiritual battle. And, and, and he goes on to, to say, uh, that there's, uh, another one coming known as the Prince of, uh, of Grisha, but he's got to go back and, and he's got to return to that fight. This angel does. And he, ga- he gives them the understanding and gives them the message from God. Now that's an interesting thing to think about. Daniel was a great man of God, and yet here we see a, a, a prayer that was hindered not because of Daniel but because of some external influence. Now, I say all of that to say this, that this was all orchestrated by the devil to prevent Daniel from receiving something. I mean, there was a few times Daniel was intended to be killed. His three fellows were intended to be killed. But God needed to have a work done over there in Babylon and for the Medo-Persian empires to continue his work later on for the fullness of the Gentiles that was about ready to come. That we find over there that Paul is dealing with. So here we are taking a look at all of these spiritual things and we begin to see this spiritual connection. And again, it comes about because of, you know, these influences. Now, I mentioned this one in Daniel in correlation with, with Isaiah and Ezekiel to show a purpose and an intent that the devil has ulterior motives. And this is where it starts. This is where it starts. The conflict starts over there on earth. In, 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 in specifically we see in Genesis chapter three, and in verse 15, that God says, if you turn there, Genesis 3.15, we'll be closing here in just a moment. Genesis 3.15, it says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, I don't want to get too much into this, because there's a lot to get into, and we've got a short time. But I want to say a few things. This is the proclamation that was given to the serpent. Now we know there was a physical, uh, you know, crawling on the belly type thing that was given here. But what we find here is he's saying there's going to be a conflict between you, Lucifer, Satan, and mankind through the seed of the woman. That's why he hates you. Okay? That conflict is there. That's why he wants to destroy you. Now, now, when we start thinking about this, Jesus Christ, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, was sent to destroy the works of the devil. And he does that through the cross and through the resurrection, the power of the resurrection. So when we start looking at this here, and we're going to get into this more next week, Lord willing, but I want us to understand this concept that there is always going to be a conflict between the devil and man. And this conflict that he talks about here in, in, in verse 15, he's talking about the coming of Jesus Christ who is going to crush the serpent's head. Now again, the serpent wasn't going to take it down, uh, take that going down lightly. And as it's talking about there, you know, uh, it shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. He's definitely going to try to fight this. And he does. And you go through and you find all of the satanic influences that were given to destroy the works of God. 
So much so that he would go into the garden to do this destruction. But again, I want to reference back to where we were talking about man's responsibility was to keep it. He was supposed to be careful about that influence. So the first thing that we want to look at in a conflict is what influences do we have in our life? The first and primary influence that we should always have and anything else that is influencing us should follow after it in like manner should be the Holy Spirit teaching us through the Word of God. That is the influence. Anything else we have that's contrary to it needs to be removed. It needs to be put out. It needs to be not allowed. Now, we're going to find this out a little bit more as we get into this in more detail, but I want us to kind of begin to understand some of this concept about where this conflict originates. Because once we understand the the origin of the conflict, we'll be able to understand how better to fight the battles and win them the way that God tells us to. So we're going to take a look at that, Lord willing, more next week. But let's go ahead and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for this time. I thank you again for an opportunity, Lord, to be in your word. Pray, Lord, that you just uh, continue to bless these things that we were learning and that, Lord, we would have a desire, Lord, to please you, to honor you, Lord, to be victorious in our day-to-day Christian battles, uh, specifically within ourselves, that, Lord, we'd have that victory that can only come by you, your word, and your Holy Spirit. I thank you again for all that you've given us, and I pray, Lord, that you just bless this 11 o'clock hour, and this I ask in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.